going to do something a little different tonight when you, uh, you take your Bible and let's stand for the reading of Romans 14 beginning at verse 13. This was an ancient custom in the church to stand for the reading of Scripture. Beginning at verse 13, then let us no more pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let what is good to you be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God does not mean food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make others fall by what he eats. It is right not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Happy is he who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. But he who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You may be seated. Thank you. The key to living in harmony with one another is to live under the lordship, the reign of Jesus Christ. That was the theme of the first half of Romans chapter 14, which we looked at together last week. Now in the closing section of Romans 14, the Apostle Paul, being led of the Holy Spirit, makes a direct and specific application of this truth to a contemporary problem in the Church of Rome, and by doing that, he blesses all of us with certain eternal principles. Now the thing he is looking at first is the matter of Christian freedom. That may be a new term to some who are here tonight. Let me explain briefly what that is. Christian freedom is the sense that when Christ died, he set us free from all of the ceremonial rules of which animals were clean and which were unclean, the dietary rules and the festival day observations that the Jewish people had kept. He cleansed all that. You remember how the Spirit said to Peter when he was up on the rooftop, what God has cleansed don't call unclean, even though Peter saw some swine in his vision and was told to kill and eat that meat. Christian freedom, therefore, means that God has cleansed his creation and that whatever is not forbidden to us in Scripture in terms of moral actions by the commandments of God, that the other things in the world are clean and that they belong to the people of God and that everyone is to use his own wisdom and his own Bible in determining how he is to conduct his life. That's the precious truth of Christian liberty. Now, 
that's why, if you've been wondering, there isn't any list of rules published anywhere in this church. You might look for one, some list of conduct, don't do this, don't do that, you won't find one. There isn't any, because of this truth that undergirds everything we do, that the Christian is free in Christ to do according as the Holy Spirit leads him. You know, it's a great thing to celebrate this matter of Christian freedom. Suppose you were an Amishman. I don't know if you, how many of you know what an Amishman? I guess everybody here knows an Amishman. Well, now they have rules that you must wear a certain kind of coat and that the buttonholes have to be a certain way and they can't have buttons, they have to have pins. Now you see, that is the opposite of Christian freedom carried to its absurdity. I'm not here speaking derogatorily of many Amish friends and have respect in certain ways, but here's a real error in the sense that once Christians begin legislating for one another, there is no stopping place. Pretty soon, the length of the pin would have to be prescribed also, and the color or lack of color, and so on and so on. If there's something you want to give thanks for tonight, give thanks that you are found in a church of the Reformed tradition which prizes the great doctrine of Christian liberty. Any college which rises out of the Calvinistic faith will not have a code of rules that you must abide by. Again, looking for discernment and the highest kind of character in their students, they would still stop short of something you had to sign on the basis of Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, which pronounce to the Christian that he is free in Christ and not to come under the conscience of some other person. God alone is Lord of the conscience. That is the undergirding truth of Christian liberty. Now, if we prize that truth, and we do, then Paul says here by the Spirit, I want you to take that truth and realize that there's an even higher truth over it which is the principle of Christian love. If we prize our liberty, even more and higher do we prize our consideration for one another as believers. And therefore, the exercise of Christian freedom is always to be moderated by and exercised within the context of a deep consideration for one another. That, I think, is the message of this passage. Let's take this consideration and try to apply it as the passage does, if we can, under the help and influence of the Holy Spirit. The consideration that a believer is to have for another believer is a consideration of his spiritual progress. You see it there in verse 13. Now, if we had the Greek in front of us, we could see that Paul was playing on words. He says, 
don't anymore pass judgment, but he uses the very same Greek word, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. In other words, cease being a judge of each other, but put all the forces of your personality into this one judgment, I will never lay a straw in the growth pattern of my sister or my brother in Christ. That's a determination which Christians are called to make. Now that's very important because the growth of your brother or sister can be impeded by you. But it is the work of God. The growth, the progress, the pilgrimage of each one of us is God's building. It is the thing for which Christ died. And the marvel that God sent his own dear son so that you could make gains in your walk with Christ. That is a tremendous reality. Think of the infinite sacrifice of heaven, that my brother could be a little farther along in his sanctification tomorrow than he is today. Think of that. Now, since God is doing this by his building, and since Christ does this by his dying, who am I in an assertion of my liberty if it causes my brother to stumble? I have no longer had consideration for his spiritual growth. So you see, you're in the place of being able either to build up your brother or to set him back. That's your choice. How solemn are the issues that are before us? How meaningful, how significant is every part of a believer's life that it could have an effect either positive or negative on the Christian community around him? We must be aware, therefore, that the slightest transgression in our life has repercussions far beyond ourselves. It either edifies or it tears down. And if a believer is able to so restrain his exercise of Christian liberty that whatever he does results in the forward-moving progress of his brethren, then his conduct is acceptable to God and acceptable to men. That's the teaching of this passage. So there's our first consideration. Be very cautious. How will what I am doing impact on the pilgrimage of those around me? Do you care? Do you care about the spiritual pilgrimage of your siblings? You that have younger sisters, brothers. Do you think, how is my attitude toward my parents affecting them? Do you think, how is my act, are my activities and my speech, and my reading, the television I watch, these things, how are they impacting upon the pilgrimage of my younger siblings, for example? 
Now the second consideration that is so central, and perhaps this is the central one of the whole passage, is this. That every Christian is to be keenly aware of his fellow Christian's conscience and to act out of a delicate consideration for that conscience. This is one of the supreme passages on conscience in all of the Word of God. And what is basic here is the high regard in the Word for human conscience. The principle underlying it is this that the will of the soul is always to act in accord with one's understanding. Whatever the understanding says is right, the will is to carry out. That's conscience. So that if one thinks it is right to do a certain thing, it may not be right to do it. For example, Paul thought he was right when he was persecuting the Christians. He wasn't right, but he was following conscience. You are not always right simply to do what you think is right. But if the will does what is wrong, what the conscience says is wrong because of convenience or because of comfort, then self becomes the idol and that person has fallen into sin. It is never safe nor right to disobey conscience, said Luther. So that even if a thing, suppose I thought for a min minute, suppose I thought that it was wrong to step on the cracks of a sidewalk. I thought that. I'm wrong. There's nothing. It's, it's a morally neutral subject. But suppose I thought that. If I thought that and went ahead and stepped, I had sinned. You see, the point is not whether the thing in itself is wrong. The point is that I have disobeyed my own conscience. And that's what Scripture holds you accountable for. Now, of course, that's a ludicrous example. But the evil of that is that I set myself up over against my conscience as the final arbiter of what I will do. Let's, let's hope that that part is clear. Just because your conscience tells you something is right does not mean it's right. But if your conscience tells you it's wrong, it is always wrong for you to do that, even if the thing is not wrong in itself. Now, with that basis, let us understand this, that the Christian is to assist his fellow believer in matters of conscience. That is, he is to line up with a biblically informed conscience in his friend. What does that mean? It means that we're to do all we can to assist each other to develop a conscience which is wholesome and scriptural. If I have a friend who thinks that it is wrong to step on the cracks of the sidewalk, a loving thing would be to walk with him and take my Bible and say, friend, you are being inhibited. You can't see the beauty around you because you're looking at the sidewalk, and there's nothing in the Scripture about that. Perhaps God will use me to free up his conscience in that point, that he could be delivered from that particular problem. 
I am assisting him at the point of his conscience. Now it is a very great error to cause anyone to think that which is innocent is in fact evil. Many do this. They take that which is innocent and cause people to stumble by making it evil in their eyes so that then when they go ahead and do it, they are now sinning when they were not sinning before. That causes the stumbling of others. We have no right to declare that to be sinful, which the Scripture does not declare to be sinful. Our goal ought to be to help develop in one another sound and biblical consciences so that a person may act in accord with them. That's what the Scripture says here in verse 22. Happy is he who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. This is what the way Calvin put it. He said, the great aid for upright living is resting in the Word of God and doing whatever it tells you to do. That's the aid for upright living, a clear and a wholesome conscience. And our consideration for each other ought to be to help one another gain this. Now the passage makes another point very clearly in the matter of conscience. We are never to induce one another to disobey conscience. Sometimes a Christian who has a great sense of freedom in this Roman context, it didn't bother him a bit to drink the wine that had been offered to idols. He said that's completely neutral, there's no problem with that, and he drank it. But his friend, seeing him drink it, and being encouraged by him to drink it, went ahead and did it. But that man thought it was wrong to drink wine that had been offered to idols. And therefore, when he drank, he was injured. He sinned against his own conscience. He was emboldened to do that which he thought in his soul was wrong to do. And his brother made him stumble. And we are not to do that to one another. That causes the destruction of the soul, not his eternal doom, but it causes an eroding of his soul in such a way that God will chasten him, mercifully we trust, but God will bring chastening upon him who disobeys his conscience because he has then set himself up as idol and he is no longer worshiping God. So do not, with your liberty, induce anyone to disobey his own conscience. Far better for the brother who feels the freedom to forego that particular thing, whatever it may be. Give that up. What is that little bit of meat? What is that compared to a soul for whom Christ died? We are to, therefore, Grant to one another all the assistance and strength and help we can in the building, developing, and fortifying of a good and biblical conscience. 
Now there's one other consideration which is given here in terms of how we're to view one another. Consider each person's relation to the body of Christ. As we look at one another, could we see invisible ties linking our brother or sister to the church? Now that, those ties are the very bonds for which Christ died. One of the reasons he gave up his life was to found a church and to unite in one all things which are his. With his blood he bought these cords that tie us together. And therefore we have to consider in our mind how to strengthen the relation of our brothers and sisters to the body of Christ. Sometimes by careless words, by careless conduct, by thoughtless gossip, we weaken the ties that bind men and women to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of being anchored every week ever more and more deeply into the body of Christ, they are gradually estranged from it and drift away from its arms. How sad. We're to see that what we're in in the church is the kingdom of Christ. This is a pretty humble kind of kingdom. No one wears crowns and we're all quite imperfect. But the scripture looks at the visible church as a representation of the kingdom of God. And he is ruling over it. And we are all his subjects, all together. And we are to influence one another in such a way that we come more and more under the jurisdiction of the king and more and more in love with him. Since that is true, any activity, or food, or any leisure or pastime that may seem questionable to us in the sense that it may cause a brother to stumble. Those things are peripheral to the kingdom. They are not the great central features of the kingdom of heaven. There it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the great central pillars of the kingdom. Can we not, therefore, out of consideration for uniting our brothers to the arms of the king, forego whatever might seem to weaken his own citizenry in the household of God? Well, that's an interpretation of Romans 14, 13 to 23. I think we've considered ourselves too individualistically in the body, each in his own pilgrimage, each concerned for his own walk with the Lord, each doing what is right in his own eyes. But friends, the great call of God is that we should decide. A, we will never put a stumbling block in the way of our brother. B, we will care infinitely for our brother's conscience. 
and see we will do all we can to tie our brother closer and closer to the body of Christ, whatever that may mean. And when concern for one another is foremost in our minds, then this matter of Christian liberty will sort itself out real fast. We'll have our answers. We'll know what to do. Let us pray. In the closing moments of the Lord's day, let us ponder. Have we walked quite insulated from each other in our own little shell? We hardly think of the bonds of great love for which Christ died. We're content to let others drift away from us without tears, without calls and caring. May we tonight make these commitments from this passage. We'll decide never to judge one another but rather we'll decide to strengthen each person's walk as we can. And we'll decide never to cause anyone to violate his conscience, but to build up his conscience in the things of the Word of God. And we'll decide to use our love to intertwine people closer into the body of Christ, which is the kingdom of our God. May it be so.